Okay, uh, good afternoon. Can you can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good afternoon everyone. Um uh, here in the Cancer Center. Uh, also, we are streaming this live to St. Johnsbury and our affiliates, as well as to the Tuck School of Business here at Dartmouth. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Justin Beckelman. He's an associate professor of radiation oncology, uh, as well as a professor of medical ethics um, and health policy at the Perriman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He is an associate scholar in the Center for Clinical Epidemiology and Biostats, a faculty in the Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Health Economics, and also a senior fellow at the Leonard David Institute for Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he has no shortage of uh, appointments and, and, and titles. Um, Dr. Beckelman is someone that I've uh, been following for a while because he has been one of the first and I think most vocal voices in the field of radiation oncology about trying to change the way we deliver care and think about improving the way we uh, deliver care based on value for our cancer patients. He has two primary uh, research interests um, with methods employing epidemiologic study, clinical trial, health economics, and blending into public policy. Uh, his first major field of interest is in cancer comparative effectiveness, and in that regard, he is leading two major comparative effectiveness randomized clinical trials, comparing proton beam therapy, which is very cool and very expensive, to photon beam radiation therapy, which is really the standard of care for both breast and prostate cancer. Uh, of note, the prostate cancer randomized trial is the first uh, of its kind in the modern treatment era. Uh, his second major focus of research interest is in the delivery system and payment reform, and in that regard, he is leading a series of studies to evaluate the impact of narrow network as well as reimbursement reforms on the use, cost, quality, and outcomes uh, for cancer treatments. Uh, many of you may know his research has appeared in uh, the Journal of American Medical Association as well as the JCO. Um, he's also had a lot of lay press coverage in the New York Times, NPR, and elsewhere. Um, he's funded by the NCI, uh, PCORI, ACS, and other philanthropic sources. He completed his undergraduate studies at Princeton, medical training at Yale, Johns Hopkins, and the Sloan Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Uh, he was also previously a management consultant at the Caucus Group, advising senior healthcare executives on corporate strategy. And he's also served as a special assistant to the Undersecretary of Defense um, with regard to health policy as well. So uh, please join me in welcoming Dr. Beckelman to Dartmouth. Thank you. Uh, it's uh, a real privilege to be here. I just want to say my mother wrote that whole thing, so please. <laughs> um, it is great to be here. Uh, we have a, a mixed audience today. I think we have a lot of clinicians and um, uh, other providers at the Cancer Center, as well as some of the uh, folks from the Dartmouth Institute. Uh, and so um, uh, what I'm going to try to do is uh, break down how I see things uh, through the the lens of, of a practicing physician, but also put it in the context of how we might construct um, research around it and also reform around some of these ideas. Um, so how, values used too much, I think. And so how, how am I thinking about value today? Um, I think it's, think about it simply as, how do we get to better cancer care per dollar spent? Simple, simple. I'm also going to think about it through another lens, 
particularly related to radiation oncology, uh, but around you know, the adoption of new techniques that are often expensive. You can think about it as medical devices like radiation, but you can think about it as chemotherapies that we use uh, in the cancer center that are um, branded expensive as opposed to the ones that we have traditionally used, you know, NAB paclitaxel versus paclitaxel. Um, versus optimizing de-adoption. So what's de-adoption? De-adoption is where, where we're using something, it's considered standard of care, but then we find that something else that perhaps is less costly but just as effective comes along. How do we de-adopt that old standard of care? So I think about these two questions um, in the context of value. And uh, I'm going to propose four different approaches, and we'll go through different ways of thinking about these approaches. The first one is delivery system innovation. The second one is provider cost sharing. The third one is price transparency. And the fourth one is evidence generation. And as I go through these, I'm going to try to rate them. These are my personal, you know, personal views. Uh, and I'd be interested, if there's time for discussion in yours as well, around their potential and feasibility, their effectiveness, and actually they're also their potential to harm. Um, so let's think about. Uh, adoption in the context of radiation oncology. So we know that the adoption of expensive radiotherapy modalities, IMRT, brachytherapy for breast cancer, has been rapid. So IMRT is a fancy form of radiation that was developed in the 1990s. Of course, the billing code for in Medicare came into existence in 2002. Uh, it was uh, three, four times reimbursed to its um, uh, substitute, which is 3D conformal radiotherapy. And between 2001 and 2005, it completely, it just substituted completely for its old modality. There was no evidence to show it was any better. Zero, none. Adoption of brachytherapy in breast cancer. Uh, brachytherapy, the FDA advice was approved, Medicare started reimbursing it, uh, it was financially lucrative, it starts to increase. No evidence that it's any more effective. In fact, shortly after it became known that it could be, could be, could be, could be potentially harmful. Um, what about de-adoption? Um, so we know that seven weeks of radiation is equivalent in terms of cancer control equivalent in terms of cosmesis, in other words, the look and feel of the breast after radiation and, and surgery for breast conservation and for breast cancer. Um, we know this out to 10 years. Four randomized trials have shown it. There's guidelines that show it. Uh, when we say three weeks of uh, uh, whole breast radiation, we call that hypofractionation. That means shortened treatment, shortened fractions of radiation, shortened treatment. Uh, conventional up to seven weeks. And what we've uh, shown is that the um, uh, de-adoption of extended fractionation has been extremely slow. And, or in this case, you can flip it and say the uptake of hypofractionation. So between 2008 and 2013, like this is not a stock that people would want to invest in. Same thing with single versus multi-fraction treatment for bone metastases. So we've known for years that a single fraction of radiation palliates pain from bone metastases equivalently to 10 fractions or more. Now, I'm a radiation oncologist. You know, there's, there are um, 
important reasons why we might use extended fractionation for various clinical scenarios, but there's little disagreement for uncomplicated bone metastases. It's now, uh, it's, been a, it's been a guideline now for years. It's equivalent. However, in 2009, only 3%, 3% of patients across Medicare who had prostate cancer uh, received a single fraction. So that that's, doesn't mean that um, single fraction is uh, better clinically than 10 fractions. It's just less expensive. So how do we de-adopt the less expensive equivalent treatment? These are intractable problems in Medicare today. So um, when we think about adoption, uh, I'm going to use proton therapy for prevalent cancers. We want to conceivably slow down. That's what the policymakers say. We want to slow down adoption of expensive treatments. When we think about de-adoption, we'll call it extended radiation fractionation, treatments that are way too long, you know, not as good for patients. Um, uh, when, it, uh, when, when they can't get back to work sooner, can't be, get back to home sooner, you know, after breast cancer, radiotherapy, et cetera. How do we, we de-adopt these extended radiation fractionations? We want to speed up de-adoption. Um, I'm not actually sure we should slow down or speed up. When, I think my, my view would be that it should be driven by evidence, should be driven by the evidence of the value of one or, one or the other of these. So let me think about, you know, in this sort of, um, in this context of value and um, de-adoption and adoption of technologies. Let me think about these four different approaches and give you some ideas about how, how we've been thinking about it in our research group. This is a great way to think about intervening at the level of the physician or health system. This is called the intervention ladder. Uh, this was um, developed by a bioethics group in, in the UK, published in 2007. At the bottom of it, uh, down here, um, each is, uh, is the least effective um, uh, intervention for changing how we practice, basically do nothing or monitor. Um, and uh, what you can see here is that as, uh, as you go up the ladder, these become increasingly effective in, in creating change. That's what the effectiveness is measuring here. Uh, what you also notice as you go up the ladder, you decrease choice, right? So there's always a trade-off. So, so what does this mean sort of clinically? So um, is this, uh, where is, is this working? Okay. It's, People can hear, okay. So, um, so right now, choosing wisely, which everyone's familiar with, it's probably like sort of number two, right? Pro providing information. Um, and uh, it's not very effective. We, we know choosing wisely has identified a bunch of low-value uh, healthcare. Um, but when we think about it in this conceptual model, it's probably toward the bottom of changing practice. Um, we can enable choice. We can guide choice through changing the default. This is actually an interesting idea. So we, we prescribe radiation like a prescription for chemotherapy or prescription for medications. What if instead, as the you know, computer pops up a little screen and says, OK, time to prescribe, what if it pops up the screen for short fractionation radiation? That would be changing the default. So that would be using decision support to help physicians sort of do the right thing. Um, guide intervention through incentives. We could pay physicians to do the right thing. We could pay physicians to um, de-adopt faster, right? So even though it's less expensive, we could say, well, we could share in some savings. If you de-adopt, we could share the savings of your de-adoption. You could take sort of a percentage of what would have been billed to help you 
um, sort of brunt some of the um, financial impacts of what's happening. <laughs> you could guide choice through de disincentives, restrict choice, and eliminate choice. So if we don't think about this, and I'm speaking mostly to the clinicians, providers here, if we don't think about these types of techniques, we'll end up, and we already are ending up at number seven and number eight. So uh, number seven and number eight, that's coverage policy. That's, you know, insurance company A, we will not pay for anything more than one treatment for bone metastasis. We will not pay for proton therapy because it's expensive. We haven't shown it's anything better, they would say. We haven't shown it's any better than what we normally do. Uh, that's seven and eight. Um, that's eliminating choice for us as clinicians. It's also eliminating choice for patients, right? So um, we want to sort of gradually move up um, depending on the context, gradually move up the intervention ladder. So let me just talk to you about one way we're thinking about this. So we are designing experiment, an experiment with a large radiation service provider that has 160 practices throughout the United States. And so uh, the aim of this experiment is to evaluate the effectiveness of what we call choice guidance or choice architecture by um, changing the default by using default prescriptions to increase the use of shorter, shorter duration radiation. So the intervention is this idea of choice guidance. Um, we would um, both provide education as well as guide their choice in terms of the default, so education around the actual clinical scenario, um, give them a default, sort of a, a, a default prescription for radiotherapy, uh, and then we would um, uh, potentially add in performance measurement. We don't, as we're designing this, we don't want to use all three interventions at once, but um, it's actually a phased intervention experiment. But um, either way, it gives us, it gives you all a sense sort of of, of as we're thinking around um, value and delivery system reform, we can actually experiment with this to try to understand how physicians respond to these different interventions. The design is called a stepped wedge cluster randomized trial. Uh, it's a, uh, it randomizes uh, physician practices and patient cohorts. Uh, the, it randomizes at the physician, at the physician level, uh, but it's the, the um, analyses are done at the patient level, so it's about 6,000 patients annually. Um, this is uh, patients with breast cancer, and the idea is that over time, um, physicians in each of these, it's, it said 60, that it's 160 practices, would be randomized to a time period by which they're then given the intervention over a staged approach. So that from the beginning, nobody is in the intervention group, and at the end, everybody's in the intervention group. It's a great way to deliver um, uh, interventions and evaluate the effect of the interventions over time. Um, this, uh, I'm going to pause there. I'm going to pause there because um, we're going to try something. I don't know if this is done in this context, but um, we've had trouble with this provider. Um, it's, again, 160 practices owned by a commercial radiation services provider um, because um, they've run into financial difficulties. And so this was just this week. Um, so this experiment is sort of grinding to an unfortunate halt. But I have, a, I have a question for clinicians here. We're at you know, a major cancer center in the Northeast. Um, uh, would the clinicians here participate in this kind of experiment? Would you have any problems participating in it? I'd be happy. So it's going to be an end of one experiment. It's just going to be near off. Well, I think 
extending to chemotherapy, they may, uh, even if they would have gotten to the same point, they may uh, subject that they didn't have the participation and the findings in the options in the first place. They didn't have the participation, so the, um, they may not object to the experiment, but they would, uh, the people who were experimenting on, which would be our fellow clinicians, uh, would have a problem potentially not, not participating in the design of the intervention. Is that what you're describing? Right. Yeah. Of what the default should be. Yeah. These are really tough issues as we think about um, slowing down adoption, speeding up the adoption, value care, because um, it implies uh, we want to participate in our own change, right? At the same time, we already know that the payers, right, are setting up this, uh, um, it's almost like a, it's an economic problem because the payers have to um, move forward even though we may be dragging our feet. This is an experiment about adoption, not an experiment about best practice. Mm -hmm. So if the best practice is no, I wouldn't want to participate because I think it's inappropriate. So uh, best practice isn't known, this is probably the wrong experiment. Right. So if the best practice is known, would that imply, this is great, would that imply that you go right to number eight? Yeah. I, I mean, I just don't understand why, why you would. I think do, the how do you, business of participating in your own change is oversold. Mm -hmm. So uh, any other clinicians' uh, reaction to that comment? I hear that comment a, a lot, especially from medical directors of insurance companies. Not that, not that you're representing that, but um, uh, some people think I am. With <laughs> um, uh, are you the director of the cancer center here? I did my research and I saw your photo. See, I, you can see I prepared. <laughs> the point is that the best. So this is the wrong experiment. No, it's the right experiment. When you, when you don't know a bunch of interventions that, that are seemingly equivalent, uh, you don't have good evidence to prefer the more expensive one, yet that seems to be trend for the practice. Then where option four, we sort of guide them to the less expensive one and put them in a position to have to do a little bit of extra work and rationale and look back to the more expensive one. Mm -hmm. But if it were designed so, with that's you know, the group that told us that, okay, uh, we're going to rank these options as being fairly equivalent, and we're going to take the least expensive one, the most value added, and make that the default, and then see what happens. Mm -hmm. But that's how they get to be the choice of, and then they'll all come up with that, the same option. It's just that they, it's, it's, it's a bit of, I think they should have a choice because there are different circumstances under which different therapies are appropriate. But the default for uncomplicated and unexplainable reason not to, to do 10 fractions would be to do one fraction. Yeah. And, uh, this is not the sort of thing that I would ask people to vote about. Mm -hmm. So um, this is uh, when... when um, there, there is a comment here. Go ahead, and then I'm going to try to close it up and move to a different topic. Very Go ahead. Quickly, the yeah. best practice is not always known. We know that, and the end point in studies is not the same. 
and we get out into the right medicine, we have to have some kind of autonomy. I mean, to choose because it, everything does not conform to the patient the same way it is in the study. Yes. And the patient has autonomy too, remember. This is something they choose. The consumer has a voice here. Yeah. So these are, I, I um, so I'll give you my view. I'm, I usually don't do this, but I, I'll give you my view, which is that um, uh, physicians have to become comfortable um, in, in a world of constricting finances, um, having autonomy on the margins. But for the great majority of patients that really have standard treatments, we say personalized medicine is coming, but personalized medicine is not at the patient level, it's at the subgroup level. Um, and those are very um, decision support oriented interventions. If you have this test, personalized medicine, you get this treatment. Um, we, we have to think about how to get more comfortable, because if we, if we say, you know what, we're, not, we're only comfortable working where we have total autonomy, then um, you know, our profession is just it will become much more managed. And so part of this talk is really about public affairs in effect, right? So these interventions, they could be done by our own institutions, right? By the office of the cancer center director. Um, they could be done by payers. They could be, right? Um, they could be done by, uh, by our own physician leadership groups. Let me give you another, you know, um, here's an example of what, actually, here's an example of what eliminate choice looks like. Um, this is a work in progress that I just did this morning, and I did it partly because uh, Laura Yasides uh, is um, a PhD postdoc who's working with me, but has an incredible history here at Dartmouth, and we are grateful to have her here. So let me let me give you a sense of what this um, uh, this correlation uh, is all about. So narrow networks are a way that insurance companies um, are beginning to think about basically cutting costs. So um, NCI Comprehensive Cancer Centers, we believe that we deliver really high-quality, high-value cancer care, but it's actually never, never been shown. It's no, there's not one piece of um, good research that shows that definitively NCI Comprehensive Cancer Centers deliver better cancer care. In that context, insurance companies, uh, because often NCI Comprehensive Cancer Centers um, have the highest billing right, and highest costs, they're being cut out of narrow networks. This has been just in the New York Times uh, uh, recently. But there hasn't been any empiric data to show this, right? So uh, we've started a um, research program where we've classified um, uh, um, across rating areas, rating areas, which is um, basically geographic areas, um, uh, different types of narrow networks on the exchanges. And so this scatter plot represents about 450 network rating area units, where the x-axis is the narrowness of the network, so broader toward one. In other words, at one, they include 100% of the 24,000 oncologists that are included in this graph. And narrow network zero means they exclude everybody. So um, that's the bottom axis, and the and the um, y-axis is a, a is a measure of NCI physician exclusion. In other words, if it goes up toward eight, 
they're including all the NCI comprehensive cancer center uh, um, physicians. If it goes down towards zero, they're including no NCI comprehensive cancer center exclusions. And so what you can see is there's a obvious correlation. This is not surprising, right? This is, this is what the narrow networks are supposed to do in a way, right? They're supposed to cut costs. But because in cancer care, the highest and most costly institutions are, are NCI-designated comprehensive cancer centers, what this shows is empirically, for the first time, that narrow networks are restricting choice. They're cutting out, um, um, and this is only going to get worse, NCI comprehensive cancer centers. So if I put my cancer center hat on, I say, oh, geez, this is a major problem. They're cutting us out. Um, the other hat on could be, we really need to show our value. Right? We really need to show, uh, as we go to the beginning slide, um, what, um, what cancer care happens per dollar spend at our institution. And why is it better than the community docs? So this is an example of, um, I think, uh, I, I was using coverage policy initially, but this is an example of delivery system reform in which insurance companies are effectively eliminating choice of a whole class of physicians. So when I think about the effect of delivery system reform on adoption or de-adoption, I think it's going to be uh, very powerful and um, you know, should be guided by um, the docs to whom it's um, uh, being, um, to, to whom are being uh, reformed effectively. We're being innovated on, so we should be part of that uh, guidance system. Let me give you a, an example of provider cost sharing, uh, provider risk sharing. I, I, I'm, I, I believe I'm at, uh, able to ask this question, but is, is Dartmouth part of the uh, CMS oncology care model? No. No? Okay. Um, but people have heard of this, and so um, uh, I want to I give uh, um, the clinicians especially a sense of what this is. To give, you, to give a sense of an, another technique that's, another, I would say it's another, it's number two, right? It's another technique that's being used to think about how to, how to improve value, how to stop adoption, uh, and slow adoption, speed the adoption. So in the CMS oncology, and this is just simple CMS oncology care model 101, what they do is they take the six-month chemotherapy episode. So imagine... Uh, this seems to be a medical oncology heavy audience. Imagine your standard six-month chemotherapy episode. Uh, in their base case, they model that on average across all of their diagnosis that that six-month episode Medicare rates cost $30,000 in total. Everything, right? Hospitalizations, chemotherapy, surgeries, radiation, all the care that you provide. That's what uh, CMS actuaries estimated. Um, they also estimated that the medical oncology professional fees were $2,000 of that $28,000. So that's medical oncology-related professional fees. That's not the chemotherapy drugs. It's just the professional fees. So they said, okay, this is the model. We're going to take that six-month chemotherapy episode, and we're going to create a CMS incentives for the, uh, for the medical oncologist. So we're going to increase by 50% what we pay them. So professional fees, this is what the medical oncologists are paying. However, when we do that, uh, the total uh, everything, number one plus number two, it goes up to 31,000. So that's not good for CMS, right? So they say, you know, instead, we're going to make them responsible for everything else. And we're going to expect them to cut costs by more than what we paid them. So overall, 
4%. So they expect in that model that uh, year one to year two that there will be a decrease in um, cost to Medicare of 4%. So this is a um, this is an interesting dynamic. So what this means is that under this model, medical oncologists at participating institutions become responsible for everything else. They become responsible for their use of branded versus generic chemotherapies. They become responsible for their use of any expensive chemotherapies as part of a larger um, package, chemotherapy package or bundle, uh, versus the less expensive chemotherapies. Um, they become responsible for the use of radiation during that six-month episode, the use of surgery, et cetera. Um, if the medical oncologist here at, you know, I won't, I won't localize it that much. That's actually not fair. Um, let me give you a sense of some of the things that I'm concerned about, right? The, a good thing here is that they're paying, more, paying medical oncologists more money and making them responsible for the whole pie. But we know a few things can happen. Economic theory would predict, um, you know, uh, if they have shared savings, right, so if they make more than 4%, they start to actually share on this in later versions of the model, um, could they start to skimp on care, right? Um, that's the negative side of, will they ask their radiation oncologist, stop doing 10 fractions, for God's sakes. Just do one, right? Skimping on care would be, ah, you know what, I'm not even going to refer to the radiation oncologist. We'll just deal with this patient with pain control medications, right? Um, what else could happen here? A good thing. Um, uh, you know what, we have a chemotherapy, uh, a group of medications that's NCCN, um, uh, NCCN recommended, and you know what, we're going to use the less expensive one because that's an easy way for us to control taking off the top, right? What's a bad part? You know what, um, these patients uh, near the end of life, you know, the reason, the only way we get paid that extra thousand dollars, and sorry, this is the economy, no, I don't mean to blame the economist, Ellen, this is the economist view of how physicians think, right, because we're rational actors mostly, um, but you know what, we're just going to start a new episode when, uh, at the end of this, rather than uh, we're going to cut a little bit, but you know what? We're going to make money each time we start a six-month chemotherapy episode. So even though this patient, eh, you know, should really go to uh, end-of-life care, we're just going to start a new chemotherapy episode, right? That's called physician-induced demand. Um, that could happen in this model. Um, these are really challenging things, and an unfortunate aspect of the uh, uh, CMS, I can be critical of CMS because I don't work for them, um, is that they're not studying these things. Right? So they have no quality control as quality measures as part of this episode payment, except for what they can derive from claims data. Julie's here, knows claims data very well. You know, we can only know certain aspects of care quality from claims data. But I, we can applaud CMS because at least, the, at least they're putting their foot forward and starting with some type of model around provider cost sharing. What could this look like in radiation? So here's something we proposed to CMMI. Uh, it was not funded, um, uh, but it was a totally fun uh, project where uh, we again had a partner, uh, a commercial provider of radiation uh, services. This one was a smaller partner, and there were 60 or 70 um, 
uh, physician practices around the country, and we were going to randomize them to two ways of paying the radiation oncologist. So one was the blue line, which is how radiation oncologists are currently paid. This was for bone metastases and for breast cancer, hypofrac. So as the number of radiation fractions goes up, the blue line, this is Medicare fee-for-service, literally goes up with the number of fractions. It's uh, just a linear line, right? So the obvious incentive, the economic incentive here, uh, we don't need to be uh, rocket scientists or economists to uh, understand this, is that, uh, you know, there's an incentive. That's not all of what's happening here, but there's an economic incentive to prescribe more radiation. So we developed this really uh, interesting model. It was developed with the physicians, uh, the physician executive leadership of the company. So it was actually... Uh, um, using not the whole group, but physician leaders to help develop it. So if um, uh, first we said, you know, there'd be a lump sum payment. So whether you use two fractions or 15 fractions, radiation oncologists would be paid the same. And then we added uh, this, uh, the business people told me, we're going to call this a quality kicker. Um, where uh, if, they, if a radiation oncologist used a single fraction for an appropriate patient, that there was an extra, extra $300 or $500, I can't remember exactly what the kicker was. Uh, and then at the end, uh, we had a piece rate, pay piece rate payment, which means um, we would, uh, if we really needed to um, extend fractionation for clinical reasons that we thought were valid, um, uh, based on the evidence uh, that we would pay for physicians a little bit extra. Why did we do all of this? We did all of this because we informed this whole model with economic theory, uh, economic theory around how physicians respond to payment. And so we thought, well, if this line was flat throughout, um, we were worried that physicians would skimp on care, right? that they would start treating even inappropriate patients with a single fraction. Um, that's why we put in this you know, line that actually has a slope to it. So we, we designed this in this way to try to, um, uh, uh, to, try to see how financial, uh, a financial incentive where there's some um, cost sharing. So this means there's cost sharing, right? Because um, uh, patient, uh, physicians are um, be becoming at risk right, in this area because they're not making any more money for each fraction they're delivering. So um, uh, this was um, really resoundingly supported by our partners. CMMI said um, to, um, I'm sorry, the Cancer Center, I don't know your, the Cancer Center director, I don't know your name. <laughs> What is it? Mark. Mark. <laughs> to your point, Mark, you know what CMMI said? They said, you know, team, this is a great model. It's really informed by theory, all this kind of stuff. Why don't you all just use one fraction? Like, we don't understand. Like, just use one fraction. So you're reflecting, uh, I think, in channeling in the right, in, the, in the, what I consider the right way, but it's not my, my opinion, um, what uh, externally um, the government payers are thinking. We, we can try to sort of mess around with making the perfect model for how to pay a radiation oncologist. And people outside of our field, people outside of oncology, they're going to say, why don't you all just, you know, we're just going to make, well, why do we have to pay for it, right? So it didn't get funded. That was the exact feedback. So uh, what's the bottom line? For provider risk sharing, I actually think it's not a great proposal for dealing with adoption. I think it will be very effective for de-adoption just because of the economic incentives. Um, let me go to another 
idea here about um, changing uh, how we deliver cancer care and improving value. So this gets in um, how we think about price transparency and how we think about patients. Um, so there's an internet startup uh, called Castlight. Um, that's like totally awesome. Um, and uh, a colleague of mine at um, she was at UCLA, was a health services researcher, and then became, of course, uh, an entrepreneur uh, and helped start this company whose job it was was to take insurance data, sell it to companies, employers, but in such a way that it allowed the employers to tell their employees exactly what their health care costs. That was their business model. Uh, and they went public. And, uh, and she went back into academia. Uh, very wealthy. And I was like, hmm, that's a great sabbatical. Well done. <laughs> so let me show you uh, a little bit about this. So we're going to hopefully this is going to work. I forgot to test this. Let me just see. Hold on one sec. I think it's... This was my fault for not preparing better. I forgot to test this, folks. Give me one sec. Let's see if that works. Okay. So I want to introduce you to Rebecca Olson. Rebecca Olson is uh, the person in charge of a very large company, and her job is to choose which health uh, is to, I'm sorry, her job is to manage the healthcare costs for her employees. That's her job. Healthcare costs can be as much as 25% of revenue uh, of employers today. It can be even higher. That's her job. And so this gives her view on why she's thinking about price transparency. That they offer an opportunity for our employees to go out and seek what medical costs are being charged in our particular area. So if you have an MRI and you need to have that procedure done in Indianapolis, you can check on the pricing and you can determine where you want to go for services and how much those would cost. Totally awesome. So what that means, uh, uh, you know, Dartmouth is an employer, so Dartmouth could uh, purchase the services from Castlight, and then when you need to get, you know, a flu shot, when you need to get um, preventative care, uh, I'm going up the ladder, colonoscopies, cancer care, you can go online. She said in such a nice way, and see what they cost, right? So this list, you would go onto your portal, and this lists all the places around you and what the cost of that study is. And then you can choose where you want to go. This is coming. It may not be up here yet. It's not very prevalent in Philadelphia yet, but this is coming. And so patients are going to be getting more and more information about the cost of their cancer care the cost of their general medical care. And we need to be thinking about um, how that's going to affect how patients deal with their health care, but also how that's going to affect 
um, how each of our institutions react uh, sort of within a uh, um, very, you know, a changing healthcare environment. It's interesting. So what's one thing you see up here? Costs. What's one thing you don't see up there? Quality. Quality. Isn't that wild? So um, it's funny because if I saw this, I would pick the most expensive one, right? Because clearly that must be the best, right? That's what we see in cancer care. Uh, people often, when they think about, um, uh, and there was just an article about this, when they, when they think about uh, where they want to get cancer care, they want to go to the best. And they often equate, we all do, uh, um, dollars with the best. Um, how do we get quality into this? It's like very challenging. And so it, it really comes down to our, in, in this world right now, uh, it comes down to our own institutions trying to figure out, well, how do we start to be more transparent about our own costs, but be more, be more transparent about quality in a way that's um, validated, right? Uh, there's a survey that's used in cancer centers right now. Obviously, there's Press Ganey, uh, but there's also this um, CHAPS survey. I'm forgetting what it's called, but it's, it's proposed by CMS. And it's like 17 pages of questions on what's going on in your radiotherapy department, what's going on in medical oncology, and, and what's the patient satisfaction. And it takes patients like an hour to fill it out. And it's horrible, right? So the point is we have no idea even how to valid, validly measure quality, let alone administer it to patients in a, a reasonable way that will make it onto these sites. Yet the market is demanding price information. The market's demanding it, so it's going to happen, right? Um, and so they're demanding price information at the level of uh, providers, and then they're demanding price information that's being given to um, patients. So this is great. Uh, a, um, uh, a collaborator with the company actually studied this. Because they knew that all these HSR economist types were going to go there and say, well, what's actually happening with this? There's not, you know, what's the effect of this? And so uh, this is what they published in JAMA. And uh, this shows basically what they, what, this was an um, observational study. It wasn't randomized, but they had um, what they called searchers at those companies that were exposed to the intervention. All the companies were exposed to the intervention. And then they had non-searchers. So these are all employees of the companies, searchers and non-searchers. And then they classified what whether there was lower costs for different types of uh, domains of care amongst the searchers, the people who actually looked for the cost information, and the non-searchers. And in this study, they showed that for laboratory tests and advanced imaging search, searches, and this, this is the point to look at, this is the adjusted rate, that there was a, there was a difference in payments. There's lower, lower payments if you're a searcher for laboratory tests and advanced imaging, whereas for clinician office visits, um, there wasn't a change. So what they're basically saying is that patients are perceived, this was an interpretation, patients are perceiving laboratory tests and advanced imaging services commoditized, right? Whereas physicians are sort of sticky, right? We, we want to keep our physician, even, even if it costs less to go somewhere else, I'm going I'm to keep my physician that's not a commodity. Well, so let's just think about cancer care, radiation oncology. I mean, my mother doesn't know what I do, right? She still calls me a radiologist, right? <laughs> right? So is, radio, is radiation oncology here, advanced imaging services, or is it here, clinician office visit, right? How are we, in the CMS model, we are totally here, and we being radiation oncologists are totally here. We're commoditized. We are, we are being acted upon by medical oncologists, right? We. Um, medical oncologists, again, 
Are we going are, are you know, um, we sometimes hear our medical oncologists say, you know what, we can describe which chemotherapy to give, but you can get that elsewhere because you get it here or elsewhere, it's okay, right? So, they can, so patients come for a second opinion, they get chemotherapy, uh, but they want to go closer to home, right? So then, medical oncology, do they come here or do they come here? Obviously, everyone wants to be here because they want, we want to be price insensitive, right? We don't want to be in the price sensitive bucket. But it makes us have to think operationally as a cancer center uh, and as physicians about uh, how to, again, demonstrate the value and also demonstrate that actually coming to an NCI comprehensive cancer center, it is not commoditized, right? We, we need to be figuring out how to be sticky. So in the last... Um, in the last five, ten minutes, um, I want to talk about this fourth idea around um, bringing more value to cancer care, which is um, evidence generation. And I, I'm going to stick it, stick, it to, uh, stick it around, not stick it to, but stick it around proton therapy, which um, uh, is, um, I mean, I think everyone appreciates it and uh, recognizes it as a, you know, issue of national tension. Uh, it's been called by um, a member of our own institution at the University of Pennsylvania, which has a proton machine. Uh, the gentleman is my mentor, Zeke Emanuel. It's been called the Darth Vader uh, or Death Star of medical devices, proton beam therapy. Um, it's good to have a supporter close to home. Um, so uh, this is what we typically see. So insurers are dealing with proton therapy in an adoption, de-adoption model. They're dealing with it at the top of the intervention ladder. They're excluding it from coverage policy. So this is what we see in their policy. XYZ insurance company considers proton beam radiotherapy experimental investigational for all other indications. Right, so they name a couple and then do it for And I can't blame them. Right? I can't blame the payers. Because right, the payers are responding to an, an expensive medical device that is FDA approved but lacks evidence. Right? So I want to inspire, I think what I'd like to do is, is, is move to cardiology for a moment to inspire um, how evidence generation in markets can change markets. So let me describe this. So in 2007, this was the global drug-eluting stent market. And uh, there were four different stents. This is cardiovascular disease. Um, and so I can read the names, but I don't know, don't know much about the actual clinical aspect. But it doesn't actually matter here. This is much more a, a way to think about evidence. So one was called Endeavor, Cypher, Taxis, and Science. And you can see in 2007, Cypher had 45% and Taxis had 55% of the market. These are medical devices so relevant for how we think about proton therapy. Um, they're drug-eluting stents, though, so they're regulated by the FDA in a different way from medical devices. So in March 2007, there was a clinical trial, a randomized trial called Endeavor 4, and it showed that Endeavor was non-inferior versus taxes at two years. At the same time, there was another trial, Science Spirit, that showed that um, science was superior versus taxes on another endpoint. In February 2008, Endeavor was approved. In July 2008, Science was approved. And so in 2007, you saw that it was 45 versus uh, 55. 
And then in 2008, once these are approved, we see this very rapid adoption of both. In these, in, based on the evidence, right? One was not inferior. Endeavor was not inferior, up to 14%. Science was a superiority trial, up to 25%. However, in January of 2009, science came back with a second trial, more evidence, showing it was superior versus taxes at two years. And in the next year, there was a $1.7 billion movement to market share, just based on evidence generation. And what this shows is that in the end, so science now takes 50%. Even though Endeavor was found to be non-inferior, you can see each of these non-inferior, they each take a third of the remainder. So I show this slide because I think it shows, I think it shows the power of evidence generation to change how we practice. It's also, and I think I'm speaking to an audience that um, no doubt agrees with me because it sounds like there's many medical oncologists here. Uh, radiation oncologists haven't provided the evidence for proton therapy yet. And as a result of that, we have these coverage policies that are at the top of the intervention ladder. So uh, we, we are now trying to uh, generate evidence around this. So in prostate cancer, there's the um, particle trial. In breast cancer, there's the what we call the RADCOMP trial. In lung cancer, there's a R2G cooperative group trial. Each of these are randomized trials of, of proton therapy versus uh, the alternative usual care photon therapy with various types of endpoints. Um, and uh, you know, the hope with these trials is that um, you know, they have the capacity um, to move markets. Uh, if, if you're referring uh, patients to other providers and there's no evidence by which you would say, well, I'm going to send this patient to, for proton beam Y, um, or there's a registry study that shows it might be better. Well, that's not good evidence. But if you say, well, there's a randomized trial that shows that it's better for these hard outcomes, that will move. Uh, um, referring providers to provide the evidence. So I can show you just briefly, this is a uh, PCORI-funded large randomized trial that's coordinated at Penn. Um, it's called RADCOMP, Radiotherapy Comparative Effectiveness Trial. It's a really fun trial because it's um, combining um, both some of the observational research training I had early on uh, with some of the more sort of randomized approaches that I've uh, learned later on. Um, it's um, actually uh, very involved with patients, uh, per PCORI uh, in a really wonderful way. So patients actually helped us design the trial. They serve on the executive committee of the trial, which is only for it's five people, including the, pa uh, the patient executive. Uh, and so um, patients have really, the patient came up with the tagline. Um, they've done a great job. So in, in this trial, what we're trying to do is randomize patients. And I'll just, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go too far into this, but it just gives a sense of, of you know, why it is that proton therapy is even thought about for breast cancer. So if you look in the right top right-hand corner, um, these are uh, axial CT cuts across the thorax of uh, a woman with breast cancer who's had a mastectomy. Uh, on the left side, and so in the top left, you can see the uh, gray in the middle, that is the heart, and uh, the black on the two sides, those are the lungs, and the heat map of radiation, that's the red part, uh, that's the radiation field across the mastectomy chest wall, making sure that no residual cancer cells live to metastasize. Uh, that's why we give the radiotherapy. And uh, that's in the case of proton therapy. What you can see is that that heat map on the left-hand side there, here, 
shows that there's no radiation to the heart. Whereas with usual care, this area here, this is uh, lower dose radiation in blue, high dose radiation in red, shows that there's more radiation to the heart. Now, of course, whenever radiation oncologists show these, um, what we can call sort of patient heat maps, they always show the idealized setting. And so this is completely unrealistic. <laughs> um, proton therapy uh, still has a small dose of radiation to the heart. We just don't know whether what we see on this piece of paper, smaller doses of radiation to the heart with proton versus photon, actually yield clinically less heart problems in the future. And so that's why we do the randomized trial. Um, Let me see. <laughs> so I'll just give you the primary objective, and then I'm going to um, I'm going to sort of close the discussion. I mean, close the sort of didactic portion. Maybe we can have a little conversation about some of these issues. So the primary hypothesis for the trial is uh, to assess the effectiveness of proton versus photon therapy in reducing major cardiovascular events. The hypothesis is that we would reduce the 10-year major cardiovascular rate. Uh, event rate after radiation from 6.3 to 3.8 percent in the sample size of 1,700 patients. So there's a couple of important words up there. Um, first, it's effectiveness, not efficacy. Um, so this has been a really hard trial to operationalize because um, the NCI, who's a stakeholder and also now a part funder, they wanted us to make sure that the beam was tuned, that it was done at elite centers, uh, that all the patients were uh, accurately reflected, and uh, um, um, we could um, uh, very clearly define that it was exactly the proton beam that caused any reduction. But that's not what insurance companies told us. Insurance companies said, well, my patients, they don't get care at all the elite center. My, you know, our patients, the majority of our patients, they just get care in the community, right? There's nobody tuning the beam for research purposes. People are tuning the beam for clinical quality care, right? That quality may differ amongst institutions, but no one's doing research on these patients in the real world. What insurance companies told us they wanted is they wanted the effectiveness side. They wanted to hear when patients are randomized to one or the other treatment, what happens in the real world? So that's how this trial is funded. It's been a challenge because, um, uh, you know, in medical oncology, radiation oncology, there's a lot of quality insurance, quality assurance in the trials, right? So we make sure that the chemotherapy is administered per protocol. We make sure that the radiation is administered per protocol. We make sure that um, uh, we test the radiation on phantoms before we test it on patients. We're already treating patients with breast cancer with proton therapy. There's no need for phantoms. That's all research, right? So in our study, and this has given a lot of people a lot of heartache, um, uh, we're, we're testing the effectiveness. But what we're really testing is if a patient is randomized to one or the other treatment, we're testing um, uh, what's the downstream, downstream consequences of simply that decision. It's actually not testing proton beam. It's testing the decision. It's also an intention to treat trial. If proton beam is unable to, because of anatomy or some other difference, treat the patient, the patient's going to get photon therapy, but will be counted as getting proton therapy, intention to treat. A lot of folks have given us, especially in the proton community, given us trouble about that. They say, well, then you're not really testing as treated proton therapy. I say, well, it doesn't matter. The decision of that patient might be, um, I want proton beam, but what will happen is they might actually get photon beam. We're going to count that as proton beam. 
That gives you a sense of the trial, some of the innovation we've done about around the trial, and our hope that by um, designing the trial with insurance company, physician, patient views in mind, that it will be a more impactful study. So I'm going to stop there um, uh, and uh, take any questions. You talked about the oncology care model a little bit. Can you comment a little bit on, I don't know if you're familiar with the United Care um, demonstration project they did in Florida, mm -hmm. and what that showed on utilization and the cost and outcomes? So uh, is that a leading question you're off? Um, <laughs> so I know part of the story, but I was mm -hmm. thinking maybe you know more of the story as, as I do. Like United, United Healthcare's model? Right. Um, so United Healthcare's model showed that you know by doing um, some alternative payment model and doing implement, implementation science, this is how I see it, implementation science with physicians, they were able to reduce variation uh, in the use of chemotherapy, but they also found that they increased um, the episodes of chemotherapy. So that's like per economic theory. Um, so that's uh, a combination of reducing variation with a with lump sum payments with a concomitant physician-induced demand. So I think it's completely. I'm not. It, it's an awesome. Again, a first step, an awesome um, experiment, pilot. Um, it's predicted by the models, um, and it's why we need to be testing these things. Um, if if we just introduce the oncology care model. Uh, and say, you know what, we believe this is going to cut costs. Well, what actually is going to happen around skimping? What's going to happen around physician-induced demand? Will costs actually be more for the population of patients in the end because they're treating more patients? That's why these, I guess it's, this is, in a way, this is a little bit of a call for the kind of research that we need to do to actually understand what's the effect of each of these interventions. Thank you, Justin. It's a great talk. First, um, I have a paper that came out uh, not very long ago, and we've never met each other until today, so this yeah. has been a terrific visit. That's great. Invited him. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that your talk highlighted for me is the, the distinction, and it's subtle, but the distinction between um, testing whether something works and testing whether our decisions about using something are really influenced by whether it works or not. Or, um, you know, there's a lot of gray areas in medicine, but sometimes I think, I would say as physicians, we're not totally open to thinking about the fact that we are making decisions in gray, in gray areas, and maybe we should have our minds a little bit more open about what influences our decisions and be either skeptical or thoughtful or a way of reflecting on um, how those decisions come to be. And, and it's really your last point. We're, we're, we're studying the decision, not whether proton beam mm -hmm. works necessarily, mm -hmm. but the decision to use that and that how it influences people. Because um, I think our decisions as clinicians and physicians are really complex, and they happen out of what we know about the science, what we know about the patient, what we know about what's convenient, even if you take the money out. And I think, I don't know if you have any comments about physicians and how they respond generally to this kind of, of difference in thinking about how we evaluate what we do. Yeah, you know, uh, I, th I think what strikes me listening to you, Julie, is that um, from a research standpoint, 
uh, it means we have to measure more, I think, to explain what we might be seeing. So in this trial, for example, um, I, I, you know, even though it's described as a randomized trial of proton versus photon, I actually think it's a randomized trial of a treatment decision one way versus the other way. But it means that we have to uh, measure much more uh, information. We have to measure who the doctor is, which we're doing. a way of thinking about research where we're combining basically the tool of the coin flip, the tool of randomization, with a lot of clinical epi, right, to try to explain what happens in the real world. I'm just curious as to whether there are, uh, or there is any way to gather data um, to compare um, efficiency, efficacy, value of care based on um, trying to think of it exactly like physicians in a fee-for-service model, I'm sure that we have data which demonstrates a variation. People in a fee, the physicians in a fee-for-service model versus physicians who are, for example, capitation. Capitation, yeah. So it's hard, you know. People say, you know, I'm, I'm at Penn. I'm an active clinician. I'm salaried. I'm not salaried. I have to get to an RBU target. I'm not salaried, right? None of our physicians are salaried. We are. Uh, we still have benchmarks in this environment. There's very few institutes. Whether it's new starts in chemotherapy or whether it's the proportion that you are seeing new patients versus follow-up patients. Um, we call ourselves salaried, um, but there are still, it's, it's just another widget that we call for money. And so I worry about saying, comparing, say, you know, a strict community-based practitioner who really, you know, every dollar goes into their pocket to an academic center and saying, oh, this is comparing fee-for-service versus salary, because in my view, they're both actually responding in some way. There might be some... Um, Dampening of the effect for the salaried person, but I don't. I don't know. I have to tell you, uh, um, you know, RV, RVU-based compensation is uh, just another way for large institutions to, um, you know, uh, bring efficiency to their workers, basically, and it's a very powerful way of compensating. So I'm, I'm not convinced that that kind of comparison is going to work today. Thank you. Thank you very much.